Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies. I'm Mikhail Carter, a host for the channel. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Jasmine Mitchell to discuss her book, Imagining the Mulatta, Blackness in U.S. and Brazilian Media, which was published in 2020 by the University of Illinois Press. So before we get started, um, thank you, Dr. Mitchell, for um, being on the show. Thank you for having me here. I'm excited for this conversation. Same. And so could you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm currently an associate professor of American Studies and Media Studies and Communication at the State University of New York, Old Westbury. And I live here in New York City and was raised uh, pretty much in New York City. And I identify as a mixed black woman. And so much of the book really uh, comes, right? Or really the genesis of the book really comes from these uh, personal experiences navigating racial and gendered landscapes. For sure. So could you tell us a little bit about that? So tell us, could you talk to the audience about your experiences um, as a mixed race black woman and how did this shape your understanding of race? Absolutely. I think very early on, right? You know, some of the first questions that I received, you know, even as a child, or something like the first memories I have are of, you know, where are you from? No, no. Where are you really from? No, where are your parents from? Okay, what are you? <laughs> right, both not just from children, but from adults, and, and I think that really gets at the not just curiosity, but really anxiety that individuals who do not present as 
easily racially classified, and at least in a U.S. Uh, racial landscape of black-white binaries, right? And here I'm really talking about like the 1980s right? or 1990s and that kind of landscape. Um, and quite honestly, I get that with my children now, right? um, you know, what are they? Or, oh, um, they look kind of exotic. And I think getting those um, early questions uh, as a child really... Uh, it forced me to reflect on what is my place right, in this kind of racial landscape, um, especially within the U.S., right? Because there was this idea in the U.S. that I couldn't possibly be from here, right? even though my family has been here for you know hundreds and hundreds of years, right, before America even existed, right? or the idea of America even existed. And at the same time, I, you know, Grew up. Uh, my my mother's from West Philadelphia. Um, so African American family from West Philadelphia, and my father's family is white from um, semi rural Pennsylvania. But early on, I, I had this sense of belonging within African American communities, right? And part of that is is understanding just even just looking at my family and seeing the that it really ran the gamut from you know, very light skin to very dark skinned, all kinds of hair textures. And understanding that was part of these African-American histories and presence and part of the future. It would start to happen then in the 1990s, I started to you know, see so many more images and just kind of discourses of mixed race people. And at first that was really exciting. I'm like, oh, okay, there's, 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 there's lots of other people um, out there besides uh, my brother and myself. Um, but yet was also confused with this idea that we're somehow new, right? As if, because like I said, my, my African-American side um, of the family, right? My maternal side, and I've always understood that racial mixture was part of our history. Right? but that we were still black nonetheless. And at the same time, I was kind of questioning why is there this focus on mixed race people as being new? And how were African-Americans actually getting silenced from this conversation? Right? Because if think about it, really, racial mixing has been going on really since colonization right? and enslavement. And so why was there this focus on new? Why was there really a silencing of African-Americans from this conversation? So I started to really think about what, what purpose does this serve? At the same time, um, you know, a few years later, I had my first experiences in Latin America. My um, very first time was actually in Cuba. I thought I was going to be an econ major and it absolutely transformed my trajectory because I realized, Oh, there are different understandings of race outside of the U S and there everyone kind of thought I was Cuban and I was seeing all these uh, population. I was like, Oh, this looks like my family. Hey, and why are we not actually talking about this? Right? As, right? Why are we talking about in the U.S. as if like this is this brand new thing and this is something new? At um, so at the same time, these traveling um, throughout Latin America, so first in Cuba and then you know Argentina and Brazil. Also, though, and you realize that despite there's this uh, focus in much of Latin America on racial mixture, that there's still very pervasive anti-blackness. Right. So even in those experiences in Cuba, um, we're sometimes not allowed in the hotel. 
um, because they assumed that actually I was Cuban and therefore um, I must be a sex worker. And I had very similar experiences um, in Brazil, right? that I must not um, really belong in some of these spaces, Right? even as people assumed that I was part of that country, but I must not belong in spaces that have been deemed as white, right? Whether it be um, my first job out of college was at the American school in Sao Paulo. And many of my uh, white Brazilian students assumed that I was one of the cleaning staff and not the teacher. And I also had you know, one of my neighbors in the apartment building, you know, constantly accused me of stealing her yoga mat, like stealing her laptop, right? just or that I should be using the service elevator, even though she knew I lived right next door to her. So I was trying to really piece together uh, these disconnects that I saw um, both in the U.S. and in Brazil and other parts of Latin America, that there's this celebration of racial mixture at the same time that there's this deeply ingrained anti-blackness and blackness is always uh, suspect. Thank you. Thank you for answering that. And so um, your book uses a hemispheric framework. And so can you talk to the audience about this approach and why Brazil and the United States? Sure. Great question. So in the book, when I say hemispheric, I'm really referring to a relational understanding right, of how histories, narratives, ideas, and social structures are interconnected in the Americas. And I only use the U.S. and Brazil, right, that there are really specific manifestations or specific configurations of racial regimes. But really what interconnects the Americas is these histories um, and legacies that we have that are rooted in colonization, slavery, and capitalism. And I think that by focusing, if we only look at um, just the national dimensions, we don't really see how the construction of race is actually this hemispheric project. Right? But I use the U.S. and Brazil specifically because how can I not? There's so much in common. Right? They both have large populations of African descent. Many people uh, from outside of Brazil are surprised when I tell them, well, actually, you know, Brazil has the second largest population in the world, right? Outside of Nigeria. Um, they have these legacies of uh, enslavement. And both have very large, uh, robust media industries. So I um, use the two because they have so much in common, but also when I'm looking at this, um, the, the research in my book manuscript, I'm really looking at the 2000s. And in both countries, there's these debates right, about the role of mixed race. Okay, the role of mixed race in national identity, the role of racial mixture and who is black or not in terms of what is going to be the future of the nation and also in terms of racial policies, right, of should we address or can we address systemic racism? But I also specifically um, look at Brazil and the U.S. too and pick this figure of the mixed black woman because, uh, again, navigating some of those personal experiences of seeing the similarities in whether it be in the U.S. or in Brazil right, or in Cuba or Nicaragua um, of how heavily sexualized mixed black women are. And so, again, that was also part of those personal experiences right, of not only whether you know, it doesn't necessarily matter with the space, there's going to be this actually assumption, right, of sexual availability. So I was really interested in 
looking at the mixed black female figure and as the idea of her and the imagery of her travels right throughout the Americas and then specifically focusing on the U.S. and Brazil. Right. Thank you. And so um, how would you define how do you define mulatta in your book in your book? And so I know you have like the tragic mulatta, erotic mulatta. Could you like explain those concepts? Sure. That's a great question. Uh, One of the uh, big questions I've gotten and also (laughs) the terms that I've used have often actually made people upset. Right, or really uncomfortable, or like, why are you using this term mulata? Um, it's really offensive. Um, and it's actually precisely that because it's it, no other term like biracial does not provoke the kind of emotional, visceral weight that the term mulata does. And part of that is really of thinking about the historical haunting that the very idea and image of mulata still has with us today. And I, I, I use this then because um, also if we use a term like mixed race, I'm like, well, that could really mean anything, right? That's just, that can mean any kind of mixture, but I'm really looking at the specificity, right, of the idea of mixture with African and European descent, and specifically how the, the mulata figure is gendered, right? This is a feminine figure, okay, that much of the imagery when really when we talk about mixed race, really actually often what we're talking, we're talking about uh, women's bodies, okay, of what is the future of the nation going to look like, um, who is going to be sexually available, and as explored some of this book, who in some cases is going to be, you know, the, the future mother of the nation, right, of what the, the nation is going to look like. And I really think then that the term mulata best encapsulates right, these anxieties and concerns. Um, but I do differentiate a little bit just because of confusion's sake. Right? In the U.S. Uh, or in English, right, we tend to use uh, mulata with two T's. And in um, Brazil right, and uh, much of Latin America, whether it be Spanish um, language or Portuguese language, um, tend to use a mulata with with one T. Um, so I do go back and forth if I'm speaking specifically about one national context or the other. Um, oh, but, but back to the erratic mulatto and the, and the tragic mulatta. Um, this is a great question too. And what I would say is that they can actually often overlap, right? They're often one and the same. And so if we think about, for example, um, uh, the Letitia, right, the that holy at uh, the Halle Berry uh, plays in Monsters Ball, right, or even Sarah Jane right, in the 1959 version of Imitation of Life, um, or even if we think actually about uh, you know the recent um, film Passing, right, that just came out. Really, so much of the tragedy, right, also comes from the idea that she's somehow sexually deviant. Right, that she's sexually deviant, but also that's that's part of um, what makes it so that she's unable to fully assimilate into white civil society, right? No matter what, and often that blame right is actually placed on the mixed black woman herself rather than the social structures right, at the time. But there can be differentiations as well. Um, so in some cases, the tragic mulata or in Brazil, I would say this is often the morena figure. Right? So in Brazil, morena can mean 
just a really big term. It can mean a brunette, a white brunette, or it can mean just a polite way to call someone black because black has such a stigma to it. Um, I'd say the Morena, or in the cases, the tragic mulatta figure, um, are often allowed to or permitted right, to be seen as somehow more pure. Right? And therefore, it's possible for them to maybe assimilate, but that's only if they cut off all ties with blackness. Right? And the tragedy comes is if they don't, if they don't cut off all those ties with blackness. The erotic mulata, and so it's really a lot erotic, is she's just sexually available. She's only used for sexual pleasure, has very little agency of her own, is often understood as sexually deviant, and often leads to tragic ends because of this perceived sexual deviance, which is really a perception of black hypersexuality. Okay? So that um, sexual violence right, is often blamed right, on black women themselves, again, rather than thinking about um, the intersections of misogyny and racism. Wow, so that's very deep. Um, yes, for sure. Thank you for answering that. And then um, I'm glad that you brought up passing. I just actually watched that um, over the weekend. And so I think it definitely ties um, into the uh, tragic mulatto, like you were saying. And then also kind of similar to some of the types of sources that you use. And so could you talk to us about the sources that you use? Why did you choose these sources? And um Pretty much how did they contribute to shaping these perceptions of blackness and or like containing blackness? Great. Oh, thanks. That's a great question, too. All right. Passing without that, that could be another project. That's a, um, a fantastic film mm-hmm. and different than most of the media archive that I look at um, because it f- focuses really on the interior lives of black women and the production and vision it is also coming right from a perspective that's really centering black women. And most of the media archive that I look at, not all, but the vast majority is really coming from um, what I call it kind of dominant media that tends to be um, white produced, right? um, directed, often written, and from industries, media industries that tend to also be white male dominated. And in both countries, that also right, reflects and reproduces the dominant social structures that we have. Right? If we think about, often we focus so much on representation, right? but it's also thinking about well, what's happening in terms of production, right? whose stories get told and how do they get told. Um, but I look mostly at what we think about as um, popular media right, or mass media. So it's not necessarily the... Um, the films that are most acclaimed, right? so I pick, pick a Monsters Ball, but put it with a Fast Five, <laughs> or a hip hop music video, um, or a Brazilian telenovela. And it's really because I'm trying to um, get at media pieces that are widely circulated and widely consumed. Right? So they have really a mass following and audience. And I'm picking these as well that are tend to be also in the in the 2000s, um, the, the early 2000s, early to mid 2000s, because that's also where I'm seeing these strands of racial thought morph. Right? This is the time of um, you know, the pre-Obama era, all the way to have like the mid-Obama era um, of thinking about 
uh, in Brazil, right, the presidencies of, um, of Lula da Silva, right, and afterwards. And part of that is, is because so much of the, um, the circulation of thought is that we're making so much racial progress in both countries. And part of what I found is really trying to push back against this idea of progress, because one of the questions you know, later is like, well, how did we then get Trump and Bolsonaro? Like, well, we shouldn't really be surprised, even if we're looking at these media talks, because even as they're seen as racially progressive, actually, they're really managing blackness all along, right, of putting forth what types of blackness are considered acceptable. And even a film like Monster's Ball um, or a series like The L Word on Showtime that might be considered progressive and actually acclaimed in many ways and are considered pathbreaking, still, nonetheless, hey, manage Black femininities and often putting them into these constraints of Black female hypersexuality, hey, or that Black, um, there's something deviant pathological about blackness itself that needs to be eliminated or managed or controlled or constrained in some way. So I look at texts as well that are um, you know, in, in this period right, of the early 2000s to you know, um, mid-2000s, I end really right around the time of the, um, of the 2012 um, handover from London to uh, Brazil for the Olympics and thinking about what are some of the common threads right, in which uh, black femininities right, are really being managed and patrolled and controlled at the same time as there's this hope for racial progress, for gender progress, right, of hopes of a diminishment of inequities Yet we're seeing, again, this is, again, these, these, they're not paradoxes. They actually go together, right? As there's also this pushback that's all along, right, against these policies, right? We're seeing pushback against affirmative action in both Brazil and the U.S., right? Pushback, right, against any kinds of racial policies that are, or gender policies that are actually redressing inequity, right? So it's not a surprise that later we get Bolsonaro and Trump precisely because there's this opening, for different kinds of representations. For sure. Thank you for that. And so um, could you talk to the audience about how does the mulatta in the, in the Americas, um, excuse me, in the American and Brazilian imagination have roots in slavery? Absolutely. It's, um, again, that's why I use that term mulatta because that it has its, literally it has its roots <laughs> in slavery. And, I look at that because we haven't, in, in either country or, or anywhere in the Americas, have really grappled with the histories and legacies of slavery. We just haven't. And really thinking about how the contemporary mulata provides this tie between legacies of slavery and the hope and the prospect of racial harmony or the prospect right, of a future without race. And really what we mean when we say future without race, we're really talking about a future without blackness. And so I begin with slavery to understand how these contemporary representations of mixed blessed female figures are really about an enduring investment 
in black containment, right? And justifying dehumanization and also a, a justification of a continual fetishization of black bodies, especially black female bodies, right? So we're still seeing some of that same um, discourse and imagery today. So I really would say then that the, um, the mulatta of enslavement haunts us, right? No matter what kind of right, image um, or discourse that we see in media representations. And so to not talk about that, right, is also to deny really, the ways in which or why we still have right, systemic racism in throughout the Americas. Right? So it's not, it's not just the U.S. and Brazil, right? but really throughout. Yeah, for sure. And so um, in your book, you kind of mentioned like how Brazil is um, still seen as this um, post-racial paradise or this exotic place and you analyze um, a hip hop source. And so I wanted to know if you could pretty much take us through that analysis and then also like tell us um, or talk to us about why is Brazil seen in such a way still to this day? Absolutely. I think Brazil itself right, promoted the idea of presenting itself as a nation without racism, right? So the, the official right, state government right, wanted purposefully to present itself to the world as really a model of harmonious race relations. And, and so part of that Brazil is, is Brazil and also part of the interest of thinking about the history, right? So Brazil never had um, legal segregation. That doesn't mean there wasn't segregation, right? But there was never legal segregation. There's not this history of, um, of Jim Crow. Yet there is absolutely right, racial violence and right, racial inequity. But there's this way um, in which it's specifically thinking about some of the hip hop um, music videos that I analyzed that of the African-American imagination. Right? And even actually, we were just talking about passing, right? Even in passing, right, with the film and the novel, right, we hear um, one of the characters, right, uh, Brian, constantly talking about how he wants to move the whole family to Brazil, right? Uh, so there's this idea that Brazil is going to be um, this place that's free of racism. I myself had bought into that the very first time that I went to Brazil. You know, I thought there was like, okay, I'm going to be in a place, you know, there's going to be so many people that look like me. I'm going to... I'm not going to have to deal with any of this racist stuff that's in the U.S. And I got there and said, oh, wow, okay, this is on, I'm going to have to navigate this in a different way, right? Because I'm being um, you know, thought of as a sex worker in some spaces, um, as not, literally not belonging in the very apartment that I live in or the job that I have, right? And yet I'm being told constantly that to talk about race itself is racist, I said, wow. And that's part of also why I really want to look at uh, these moments between the U.S. and Brazil. Because I said, oh, that's like something I hear in the U.S. that you can't talk about race because it's racist. I said, we need to have these in conversation with each other. Right? Or this is really why we need a hemispheric conversation. right? Because both the U.S. and Brazil, we can learn a lot from each other. Um, so, But going back to why it's considered this exotic paradise, um, it's also we have to talk about the sexuality here, right? 
um, so Islam is this place that's that's free of racism. It's racially harmonious um, because of its racial mixture. Right? Because it had so much racial mixing, there can't possibly uh, be racism. Again, arguments that I heard about um, the U.S., right, that eventually we'll have a racially mixed future and there's not going to be any more racism. And also um, part of this idea that it's racially mixed, so therefore can't be racist, um, is denying those histories of enslavement and colonization. Okay? So if you think about um, you know, very noted Brazilian scholars right, like Gilberto Ferreri, who kind of romanticizes these histories of enslavement, right, and romanticizes them as uh, you know the um, mulata who is enslaved but seduces right, white men, and it's thought as this love story. It's romanticized and completely erases all the sexual violence from these histories of enslavement to the histories of sexual violence that we have today. And part of that is that then uh, Brazil is thought of as this exotic racial and sexual paradise. And that's what's so important. I mean, it's thought of as racial and sexual paradise at the same time because of the ways in which um, mixed black female bodies are presented, are marketed, historically also by the Brazilian government, right? If you think about the kind of like the Molata Samba shows, about the tourism brochures, and then how that also went back to the U.S., right? And the Brazil is thought of as a um, place that's free racism, where there's these sensual, um, sexually available uh, Brazilian women that quite honestly look quite like the U.S. women we have back at home. <laughs> right? like that's what we have at home <laughs> right? Right? but I mean, they don't have it because it's imagined as a place free of racism and free of um free of these histories of slavery and jim crow it doesn't have that same weight right? it doesn't have it's not seen as having that same kind of trauma right? that same kind of baggage so it's also seen as this place right where african americans can truly be free mm, for sure wow and so um Again, well, I don't know if I mentioned this at the beginning, but I enjoyed, absolutely enjoyed reading your work. And so um, what takeaways do you want the audiences to gain after reading this book? All right. Thank you for that. One is, the big one is mixed race people are not going to save us from racism. I feel like every couple of months I read some newspaper article or there's some some celebrity that goes on, right, that just talks about, you know, because our feature is um, more racially mixed and our multiracial population is growing and, oh, look how far we've come, um, that we're no longer going to really need to talk about race. (laughs) Well, one that's not true. If you look at even our histories in the U.S., right, that's called colonization and enslavement. That did not work. <laughs> that clearly is some of the roots right, of the racial inequities we have. But also, right, if you look at Brazil, right, that did not work there either. Right? This idea of that racial mixing is going to lead to racial democracy where everyone's equal, right, that actually going to be further from the truth. Um, so really getting rid of that mentality of that them how magically right, mixed race people, especially the bodies right, of mixed black women, are going to really what they mean is they're really going to widen the nation. Right. That's really what they mean. Of like we're not going to have this black population that we really don't want anymore. 
hate or going to be able to control or they're not going to be as much of a problem because they're going to eventually mix out. Right? That's really um, so much of the mentality that I, I really want to get rid of. Um, another is really thinking about the various ways in which racial mixture, but also managements of blackness are used actually to upheld um, or uphold right, racial hierarchies. Right? So it's really seductive, I would say, to hope that there's going to be racial progress, that there's going to be a racial democracy, oh, we're not going to need to talk about race anymore without actually doing the hard work of dismantling these systems of oppression, right? of dismantling right, racial and gender inequities. So um, especially in this moment, right, where we're in, in both in the U.S. and Brazil, right, where we're seeing this galvanization of, um, of black organizing, particularly black feminist organizing. And at the same time, right, we see um, how pervasive right, white patriarchy is. Right? It's I don't want us to I don't really get too comfortable Right, with this idea of progress, right, or especially of, of racial mixing as leading to this raceless future, without again right, really thinking about what kind of future do we want to have, right? And that's not necessarily a future without race, right? It's really a future without racism, and so therefore we can't buy into this kind of logic or this imagery, right? Of oh, you know, there's so many multiracial celebrities. Um, oh, the multiracial population is growing. And the same in Brazil, right? Of like, oh, what are you talking about? We can't possibly be um, racist because we don't have racial mixing. I mean, because uh, because we have racial mixing. Or, oh, we can't have affirmative action in our Brazilian universities because who would qualify as Black in the first place? Um, that's too complicated. That's going to bring in a U.S. idea of racism. right? Really, all those are excuses. Right? Really, uh, excuses for not wanting to go back to the roots of the problem, okay, which again, stem from colonization and enslavement. Right, so what I would say then really is a takeaway, um, again, is mixed race people are not gonna save us from racism and thinking about right, that there's so many different strategies of managing blackness. In this case, I'm specifically looking at how mixed black women's bodies get utilized for managing anxieties around blackness and for us to be attuned to not get caught up in this <laughs> and to think about what what is actually that uh, what is it actually that we want to um, to break down what is it actually um, that we want to dismantle and what kind of future do we actually want to build together Awesome. Thank you so much Dr. Jasmine Mitchell again for discussing your book with us um, imagining the mulatta and um so before we go what are you working on next oh great question too um so was actually supposed to be in brazil this year but you know pandemic <laughs> um but, you know, one of the questions that i um often got as i was writing this book is well what about men hey can you talk about wh where are men in this picture and as I started to um, to really think about the place of masculinities, it led me to think about sports, right? That that's really where we're thinking about um, black visibility and black invisibility in terms of racial mixing. Um, so whether we're thinking about our um, in Brazil, our Neymars and Ronaldos, <laughs> um, 
from the soccer world or in the United States, um, thinking about how mixed blackness, mixed blackness um, gets activated or deactivated. So we're thinking, for example, about like a Colin Kaepernick or Patrick Mahomes or Derek Jeter, right? Of how does sports right, become this vehicle for engaging with um, mixed black masculinities, expectations of masculinities, right? And still these anxieties around blackness. So I, I, so I think the next project is, is most likely going to look at um, sports, right? Between US and Brazil, possibly global. And then it might also be looking at kind of the next iteration of media techs. There's so many exciting uh, um, media techs now in the US and Brazil um, that are really telling a different kind of narrative and a different kind of story, I would say, um, and also different kinds of celebrities um, that are much more, and instead of, I would say, pivoting right towards whiteness are really actually using uh racial mixture as a pivot towards blackness. So even right, a film like we just talked about passing um, or a TVC series like Queen Sugar right, or celebrities like Atessa Thompson or Zendaya. Um, so I'm interested in right, this next moment right, or this next stage right, of um, mixed black femininities that we're seeing, right, specifically ones that um, center right, black, uh, black female voices. Wow. So it sounds like um, you're going to have another amazing book or two coming out soon. <laughs> and so we're going to love to have you uh, back on the New Books Network for sure. Um, so thank you again, uh, Dr. Jasmine Mitchell, again, for sharing your research with us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Of and course. I enjoyed our conversation.